For those of you who are visiting, we've been w- w- working our way through the life of Joseph, and that's why we come to this chapter uh, this morning. And um, it reminds me a little bit, I guess, of a, a, a film, a scene in a film or something when relatives all gather together and they want to know what they're going to get. Um, usually in the film, the father figure has died and all the relatives, the sons and daughters are there rubbing their hands, hoping they're going to get something in the inheritance. Um, some are disappointed uh, and some uh, rejoice. Um, it's a slightly different scene here, though, a different scenario, because Jacob is still alive, and he gathers his, uh, his sons together, and he's going to tell them. You notice that in verse 1? Um, Gather round so that I can tell you what will happen to you in days to come. In fact, he doesn't, uh, he's got nothing to leave them. He doesn't give them anything. He hasn't got any land or property or riches or anything. It's, it's more or less a, a prophecy, really, about what's going to happen to them. Jacob is foretelling what's going to happen to these uh, 12 sons of his. It's a reminder, a, a, a picture of the, um, uh, the, the sons and how they were composed. Have we got a picture, Steve? Father's blessing, so what? There you go. There's the, the family tree, if you like. You've got uh, Jacob there, the, the, the father figure, as, as it were. You've got Leah and Rachel. They're the two sisters. But Leah also had a servant whom uh, she gave to Jacob as a kind of a, a, a concubine, and as did Rachel as well. And that's how you get all these, these sons of Jacob. And they're the 12. They go on to form the 12 tribes of uh, of Israel. So Jacob is foretelling. And in a, in a sense, it's God speaking through Jacob, just as he spoke through Joseph. Remember, Joseph had the dreams, uh, the idea that his brothers would all bow down before him. God was speaking through that dream. And now God is speaking through, through Jacob about the fortunes and the future of his sons. What's going to happen? Well, it's good news for, for most of them. John only, I asked John only to read the first part, but you can read through the whole chapter. And generally, it's fairly positive for all the, all the, the, the sons. They're all going to inherit. It's anticipated that they're going to inherit. So there's another picture coming up which gives you uh, a kind of a map of what happens late, many, many, many years later they end up going into the promised land and and they're allocated an inheritance of the promised land. And you can see the names of the the sons of Israel are all inherited there. So, for example, Zebulun. I don't know if you can make out Zebulun. Uh, It says, will live by the seashore and become a haven for ships. His border will extend towards Sidon. So Zebulun is up there. Uh, Asher, another tribe. Asher's food, verse 20, will be rich. He will provide delicacies fit for a king. So Jamie Oliver and people like that are all going to come from, from Asher. There's going to be, they're going to be a tribe of chefs. They're going to provide delicacies for the king. Lengthy blessings are given for the tribe of Joseph, which is split on the map there between Manasseh and Ephraim, his sons. 
So there's a lengthy passage there in this chapter 49 about God's blessings on, uh, on Joseph. Joseph, of course, was the one God had raised up to save the Israelites at this time. And most of the other sons get something positive from their father. Now you might say, what on earth is there in this for us this morning? Is there really something for us here? How can we apply this to us? Well, I think there is, and I want to show you, I want to pick out the first few that uh, were read to us. Reuben, Simeon and Levi, and Judah. They've got something to tell us, even today. And the first thing I want you to notice from the passage is the consequences we face. The consequences we face. And you see that in Reuben. He's the firstborn. Wow, great privileges are given to the firstborn in this culture and in many other cultures. Uh, Look how he describes him. You are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power. Reuben could have had this tremendous privilege given to him throughout his lifetime, honored by his brothers. But notice the tone change in the next verse. Verse 4, turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel. Why? For you went up onto your father's bed, onto my couch, and defiled it. Now that was referring to something that happened back in chapter 35 in Genesis, when Judah decided to sleep with Jacob's concubine Bilhah, the mother of Dan, and Naphtali, his half-brothers. And only one verse is kind of given to that back in chapter 35, verse 22. But it's interesting that it comes back now to face Reuben after about 40 years. It comes back to face him. The defiance he showed, the defilement of his act against his father and against his God. Reuben faces the consequences of his actions and he loses the rights of the firstborn. He could have had so much blessing. But he lost it because he broke God's moral law. Which is what the Bible calls sin. Sin is the breaking of God's moral law. And there are terrible consequences to that. Now, Western 21st century people don't like this kind of talk. I know that. They have difficulty with a text like this because they fail to appreciate uh, the idea that there is a moral law. They might deny it. Uh, They certainly don't want to be held accountable for their actions. So you hear people making kind of all kinds of excuses when something like this comes up. And let's make excuses for Reuben, shall we? Like people would today. You see, Reuben, he didn't know that he was doing any wrong, really, did he? He didn't know he was doing wrong. After all... If you know your Bibles a little bit, uh, the law forbidding that kind of behavior came much later with Moses. So poor old Reuben, he didn't know. He's just ignorant, really. He didn't know he was breaking the law. Really? Are we going to accept that? 
would you say the same thing about murder? When Cain killed his brother Abel, would we say, well, Cain didn't really know it was wrong? The law hadn't been given, written down under the law of Moses and the Ten Commandments. But poor old Cain, would we say that? I don't think so. No, in God's world, you and I as human beings are morally accountable to this God. It's funny, isn't it, how people will still acknowledge that there is a moral law, even if they might say they don't believe in God, they don't believe in uh, a, a higher being. We all, we, we've all evolved by time and chance. But they will still say what happened in Paris last weekend was wrong, was evil. And I think our challenge, as a, my challenge as a Christian to a person who says that, is this, where do, you get, where do you get your moral value from? Where does that moral law come from? If it's survival of the fittest, well, the terrorist's got to do what he does. It's survival of the fittest all the way along. But you and I know that's not right. We can challenge the, the secular view. There is a moral law. And Reuben has broken it. And some people say, well, well, but what Reuben did, you know, it was such a long time ago, at least 40 years. Surely he can't be held accountable now. Surely he can't be punished for that now. So what are you saying? The longer ago a crime was committed, the, the less serious it becomes. Would you agree with that? If something was committed against your loved one or against you, I noticed the, the murder of PC Yvonne Fletcher came up in the news this last week. It, it happened in 1984. They've just arrested somebody now. And the family said, you know, Yvonne's father would have loved to have seen this day, but he's died a few years ago. <coughs> Clearly, God doesn't think that the passing of time dilutes his justice or the seriousness of sin. And then some of you say, well, you know, Reuben just let his feelings get the better of him. You know, he's only human and, and, and we're all flawed. Well, I would agree with that. Yes, we're all flawed. But sometimes that phrase is almost said that that means that we can't be held accountable. So somehow we're not responsible for controlling our feelings or desires. Would you agree if someone uh, stole your car from the car park this morning? Well, I just had to steal it, you know, just had this desire for a newer car. Oh, that's all right then. <clears throat> or if someone forced himself on your daughter. Oh, that's just your feelings. No, Bible is clear. Very helpfully. 
God holds us responsible for the controlling of our feelings and emotions and desires. It's very interesting, right at the beginning in Genesis chapter 4, right at the beginning with Cain and Abel, God comes to Cain and he is angry with his brother. He is jealous of his brother. And God knows what's going on in his heart. And God says to him, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Right at the very beginning, God is saying to Cain, do you know you're responsible? You're being tempted. You're being tempted to, to let your temper get the better of you, but you must master it. Right at the beginning, God holds human beings responsible, accountable. And it's the same here with Reuben. There's a moral law and breaking it has serious consequences. <clears throat> and you might say, well, why is that? <clears throat> Years ago, I, I heard a true story of a father who took his little toddler to his first football match. It wasn't a big thing. It wasn't Man United or anything like that. But there was a little bit of a stand and uh, <clears throat> the little toddler was really excited and his father took him up, carried him up to the to the kind of top of the stand so he could see the match going on. And he explained to him a few ground rules. He says, son, you can run up and down these stands. There weren't many people there. You can run up and down there, but you can't see that white line. You can't go down there and you can't step on to the pitch. You mustn't do that because the game's going on. He was old enough to understand. So he put his little boy down and immediately he ran down to the pitch and put his foot over the line and looked back. In other words, he's saying, so what are you going to do about it now, Dad? There's a kind of defiance. Mark, get ready for that. <laughs> There's a kind of defiance. And, and I think that's what's going on when the Bible talks about you and I breaking God's law. It's not it's not just the problem of education. It's not just not knowing what we should and shouldn't do. There's something more going on in our hearts. It's not just the, the action, it's the attitude. It's rebellion. It's rebellion. And, and, and we can deliberately step over the line. God's good lines. Sexually, yes, that's what the text is saying here. <clears throat> when we clearly disregard God's good rules for his good gift of sexuality. We step over the line. What happens? There are real consequences. Our society bears witness to that. The sadness and the sorrow and the hurt but it's not just about sex. You know, sin is not just about sex. It's socially. The Bible talks a lot about you know, the way we treat one another. It has a lot to say, much as, as much to say in this area as it does about sexuality. So when we show jealousy or, or hatred or gossip or pride, to name a few, we, we kind of step over the line. We know it's wrong, but we can do it anyway. Or spiritually, idolatry. We know, we, we know that 
you know, material things are never going to satisfy us. We know that. We, we know that what the Beatles sang, money can't buy me love, but you know, we love money. We love material things. We, we give our souls for our career. And that kind of idolatry has consequences for us. So we can't continue to step over the line and expect life to go on wonderfully and expect wonderful blessing. Reuben discovered that, didn't he? God's justice catches up with him in the end, as it will with each one, you and me too. So I think there's a lesson for us. There's something very relevant there for us in the life of Reuben. The consequences we face. But secondly, the character of God. It leads us on to think about the character of God. Look at Simeon and Levi. Look what happened to them. Verses uh, 5 to 7. And I think this is really relevant for us um, at this particular time especially. Simeon and Levi, they're the next in line in order of age. They're the sons of Leah as well. And it's interesting that Jacob has no positive words about them at all. And notice what he says. He, he mentions Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. He has no desire to join their council. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their... I don't want to be a part of them. I don't want to be involved with them. Why? For they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Killed men in their anger. This refers back to chapter 34 when there was an attack on the men of a, of a particular <clears throat> city around 40 years before. Their sister, they had a sister called Dinah. And uh, sadly, she was, she was raped by a chap called Shechem. The Bible is uh, very real. And it contains this story. And her brothers, Simeon and Levi, found out about it. And they were, naturally, they were furious. Shechem's father said, well, listen, let's try and patch things up. Um, he does like her really. Shechem does like her really. <laughs> so let's get married. Let's get them married. The father was really interested in kind of gaining some kind of a, a relationship, I think, with uh, Jacob and his brothers. They could do trade. He wasn't really concerned about Shechem and Dinah. And the brother says, well, okay. But uh, if you're going to marry our daughter, you've got you've to submit to certain conditions. You've got to be circumcised as well. As we Jews, we, we Israelites, we're circumcised. Oh, they said, well, let's think about it. The men probably had some doubts about that, but they did. And while after they were circumcised, Shechem and, uh, and, and all the men of the city agreed. And while uh, just after that, Simeon and Levi attacked the city, I guess with help. And they slaughtered all the men 
of that town. And Jacob rebukes them. He says, you've brought trouble on me by making me a stench to the Canaanites. So no wonder Jacob says to them, let me not enter their council. They can't be trusted. Now no one is defending what Shechem did to their sister. The Bible is not commending that. However, here God is condemning Simeon and Levi for what they did. Two wrongs don't make a right. So instead of a blessing, they are cursed. Cursed be their anger, so fierce, and their fury, so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. And God fulfills that curse. When he judges Simeon, after the Israelites go into the promised land, Simeon kind of gets swallowed up in Judah. Simeon doesn't, doesn't feature at all, really, once they get into the promised land. The tribe of Simeon is like diluted, like sugar in coffee. It's kind of diluted. And it doesn't really have a, a proper identity after that. In that sense, they are dispersed. You see, with God, there is judgment and there is justice. Now, we look at what's happened recently in Paris and the violence and the weapons of destruction. And we say, well, does God care? And the text says, yes, he does care. And he is going to call people to account for their violence and their cruelty. And, you know, that is good news. That is something to think about. That God is not indifferent to what is happening in the world. I know that there's a mystery. God didn't stop Cain killing Abel. He doesn't stop um, terrorists exploding and detonating bombs. I know there's a mystery. But we need to be clear that, that, that all those who act like this will face his judgment. It reminds me of the film uh, a long time ago, what she called The Interpreter. There's this woman in the UN in New York. She's an interpreter and she goes back for her bag one day and she overhears a whisper. And it's a whisper plotting to kill an African leader who's coming to the United Nations. It's a fictional leader. And um, this leader be was a good leader at first in Africa, but then he became, I guess, um, tainted by his own power and he became a murderer of all his, uh, all his political opponents. And the interpreter tells the police. And the plot is, is trying to work out, is this a real threat? Is this man going to, be, going to be murdered when he comes to the United Nations? There's a subplot that her brother lives in that land where this president comes from. And he makes lists. And he always did that as a boy. He always made lists. And she, she can't reach him. She can't find him. She's trying to get hold of him. And it turns out that he has become a victim of this man's violence. And the film ends by this man is arrested. This African dictator is arrested. 
and he's in the Hague and he's brought to justice. And the lists that uh, this, this girl's brother had kept included lists of all the victims of this man's violence. And they are read at the Hague and they condemn him. And there's something satisfying about that at the end of the film. That a man is brought to justice. God has his lists, the Bible says. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. So we see something there of the character of God, his justice. But you know, we also see something of the mercy of God in Levi. The mercy of God. Because it's interesting that from the tribe of Levi, we find Moses. And we find his brother Aaron. And God will use them later on to, to bring them out of Egypt and God will make the sons of Aaron the priests you give them a special role in Israel yes they they're going to be dispersed they aren't given a portion of land they're given towns and cities around 48 I think but God remembers God shows them mercy They don't get dissolved. In fact, they're given, they're given great prominence for the role that he gives them as the priests of Israel. Why does God show justice to Simeon and mercy to Levi? Well, it underlines a certain important truth. God says to Moses later on, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. You see, mercy is something that God can choose to show if he desires. Can't be demanded. Can't be expected. Not part of the contract. But God can show mercy. Don Carson describes a time when he was studying in Germany for a while and he, he was struggling to learn German and he met up with a West African uh, there who was doing the same thing. They were struggling with their German. So every now and again they met up for a meal once a week and they could speak in French. They spoke, both spoke French. And he got to know this chap and uh, <clears throat> He discovered that his wife was in London. She was doing some study. She was working as a doctor, I think, and he was pursuing his studies in Germany for a while until he got his qualification. And as he got to know this chap, he discovered that uh, once or twice a week, this guy would go into the red light district and spend his money there. And when he got to know him a little bit better, he, he asked him, he said, what would happen if your wife did something similar in London? Oh, he said, I'd kill her, he said. Well, that's a bit of a double standard, isn't it? Said Don Carson. 
Ah, he says, where I come from in Africa, the husband has the right to sleep with many women, but if a wife is unfaithful to her husband, she must be killed. And he said to her, but you said to me, you were raised in a mission school where you were taught the Bible. You would know that the God of the Bible doesn't have double standards like that. Ah, he said with a smile, God is good. He's bound to forgive us. That's his job. Now many people think like that. He's bound to forgive us. That's his job. But when you come to the subject of forgiveness and mercy, we read in the Bible that that is not his job at all, as if it's a contract that he has to fulfill. But it raises a question, doesn't it? How can God be absolutely just and holy? And how can he show mercy? How can he forgive? And in the Bible, as you go down the story of the Bible, you find this kind of tension. God, God, God is just, God is holy, and yet he's compassionate and forgiving. How do those things come together? How can they? And of course, the answer to that question comes into the New Testament. When you understand the good news of the gospel, becoming a Christian is all about grasping that good news. I know that God has not given me what I deserve. This is the good news, which is judgment for my sin. Instead, he has made a way to punish my sin without destroying me. So he satisfies his justice, but he can show mercy. How does that happen? Well, it happens at the cross, where God himself, in the person of his Son, comes, comes to earth and bears the punishment upon the cross, God's justice might be met and his mercy might flow to you and to me. It's a wonderful gospel. It's a wonderful thing. And it's because of God's mercy that I've come to trust in this Jesus as my Savior. God is rich in mercy, Paul tells us, out of his great love for us. God who is rich in mercy has made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And, and this is a message that is the good news for people like us. Maybe you're new to these things. I want you to know this, that God offers you mercy this morning. He offers you his mercy, what you don't deserve. He offers you mercy. Will you ask him for it? Will you receive it through Jesus Christ? This is the wonderful character of God that we see there. So we've seen something of the consequences of our sin, consequences we face, something of the character of God. And lastly, I want you to notice the king the king we need. And we need to look at Judah for this. The king we need. By contrast, Judah gets five verses 
And uh, the tribe of Judah is going to be victorious over his enemies and lead his brothers. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. These verses are filled with hope. Judah is described as a lion. The lion king, if you like. The royal tribe. And here's the prophecy. Verse 10. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. So Judah's going to be the royal tribe. Kings are going to come from Judah. And eventually a person is going to come who's going to take the royal scepter and the nations are going to come, not just Judah and Israel, but the nations are going to come and will bow before him. And it's going to be a kingdom of plenty. I think that's the idea behind the uh, tying the donkey to the, to the, to the vine. I've not seen many donkeys or vines around Leftwich recently. But uh, what is it saying? It's saying that in times of war, in times of trouble, you know, vines are precious. You don't, you don't tie a donkey to a vine when there's times of scarcity. But when there's times of plenty, that's fine. And you can wash your garments in grapes. I think it's a poetic way of saying, you know, there'll be plenty. Not to be recommended, I don't think. So this is a kingdom who's, who's it's going to be wonderful. It's going to be great blessing and peace. Who's the king? Well, it's interesting, isn't it, that David, King David, comes from the tribe of Judah. And under King David's reign, the kingdom flourishes for a while, but it doesn't last. He commits adultery, and, the, and there's civil war, and the family suffer disgrace. Ah, but there's another king who comes, isn't there? I was in the shops recently and they're even playing Christmas music now already Christmas is nearly upon us do you remember the words of the angel to Mary about Jesus he will be great and will be called the son of the most high the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign forever his kingdom will never end now, this is a prophecy about Jesus and when the wise men come they say where's the king and they the, the religious people know oh he's going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea in Judah he's going to be born the nations are coming to worship the king is a prophecy about Jesus Christ. <coughs> Reminds me of the story of the Lion King. You know the story of the Lion King? When it's all messy. The wrong king is in charge. Scar. And there's no food. And it's terrible. But when the real king comes, Simba comes, the kingdom is restored. Or do you remember the story of King Arthur? You remember the legend of the stone, the sword in the stone. And there was a prophecy by Merlin that whoever could draw that sword out was the real king of England and would restore. England had fallen into chaos and would, 
the king would come and restore everything. And little Arthur, who's a teenager and despised by people, he comes and he takes the sword and pulls it out of the stone. Well, Jesus Christ is the one who has the scepter, the sword, if you like, to reign. Isn't that the great need for the world today? A king. A king who's going to put things right. He's going to bring justice and peace. Jesus Christ is the real lion king. He is the real King Arthur who's coming. What do we do about that? Well, the Bible says there's two things, two responses to that. First is this, that we've got to take a personal step. We must take a personal step to acknowledge Jesus Christ as our king. That's what a Christian is. A person who comes to acknowledge Jesus as king. To me, personally, that's how we come into his kingdom. But once you do that, you have a powerful hope. It's a hope that we have and need today. That one day the king will return. And he's going to put everything right. Yes, there's going to be justice. But there'll be resurrection. There'll be renewal. This is the Christian hope. Yes, there'll be sadness now. Yes, there will be sorrow. But the King is coming. And as Christians, we have tremendous hope. It's the hope of the New Testament. And we can say, for every day I have on earth is given by the King. So I will give my strength, my all, to love and follow him. Well, let's respond, shall we? By praying and singing together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that even in this passage dealing with Jacob and his sons, we can see glimpses of who you are and glimpses of the Savior King, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would give us faith to see him and to trust in him and to remember the hope that we have, the hope of the nations, Jesus Christ coming again, bringing in his kingdom of joy and peace and justice. Help us, we pray. Amen.